In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So this summer, the sermons at All Souls are going to be focusing on our epistle reading. So for the next several weeks, you'll be hearing about 2 Corinthians. To back up and give a little bit of introduction, though, when you read epistles, you are quite literally peeking at someone else's mail, getting one side of a conversation. And while all scripture is, in a sense, written for us, useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, in another sense, the epistles are not, at least not written to us, they're actually written as correspondence to a real church in a real place thousands of years ago. And so to understand them, we have to do some work to piece together the whole context. Paul has a fraught relationship with Corinth. He founded the church, but after he left, he had to correct a number of problems that had arisen in the church in a letter that we have as 1 Corinthians. The Christians in Corinth seem to have pushed back and rejected those corrections, and it Seems like Paul had to write another letter calling them to repentance, a letter we don't have, but we have referenced elsewhere. After a number of them turned back, he writes this letter that we call 2 Corinthians as part of the ongoing reconciliation process. Much of what is going on between Paul and the Corinthians has to do with their impression of who he is. Paul was no stranger to persecution, to hunger and imprisonment. We can read all about it in the verses Beginning in chapter 4, he describes himself as afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. The trouble for Paul, or maybe just for the Corinthians responding to Paul, is that his suffering looked like failure. His weakness, as well as his poverty and his apparent lack of a rhetorical flair, seemed like evidence that he was in the wrong, or at least maybe a less appealing option compared to other apostles. It isn't hard to imagine ourselves taking a similar position. If we were being invited into a way of life, and the person who taught us and invited us to follow in their footsteps is continually persecuted and imprisoned and beaten, who has to work a side job in order to make ends meet, we might think twice about their method. We're naturally drawn to success. And if we were in Paul's shoes, it's easy to imagine that we might find ways to cover up or downplay those weaknesses. It's resume building 101. I wasn't fired, there were creative differences. I wasn't a part-time food service employee, I was a sandwich artist. But Paul leans in here and elsewhere into the definition of his persecution, into identifying with it. In what at first glance might seem like a weird rhetorical move, Paul lists out his sufferings. But he does so to point out that the suffering did not win out. Pressed, but not crushed. We're not dead yet. This is what leads us into chapter 4, verse 13, in which Paul writes, Just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with Scripture, quote, I believe and so I spoke, unquote, we also believe and so we speak. The Scripture here that Paul is saying that their spirit of faith is in accordance with is Psalm 116. The heading for that psalm in John Golden Gay's First Testament, his sort of summary of it, is Thanksgiving for Recovery from an Illness. The psalm opens with, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. And then it goes on to tell of God's faithfulness in delivering the psalmist's soul from death. I should note that if you turn to Psalm 116, you'll find that verse 10 reads, I kept my faith even when I said I am greatly afflicted. But the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Paul would have been using, has the verse just as he quotes it. The closing section of that psalm asks, What shall I return to the Lord for all his bounty to me? 
And the psalm answers the question with calling on the Lord, paying vows, and offering thanksgiving and praise. Thanking God is the answer. So Paul is quoting this psalm because he doesn't look back at what he's gone through and see failure. He looks back and sees God's deliverance. Like that of the psalmist, he sees a sign of God's faithfulness. And here already, Paul is challenging some of our assumptions about might and victory, about what visible success looks like, or maybe whether or not visible success is a value. Because it's easy to look for those outward signs, ones that can be quantified and tracked and plotted and graphed, ones that we can hold up a nice little pie chart or a nice little scatter plot that says, look, we're trending upwards. But Paul, in the midst of suffering, poverty, and hardship, is still encouraged. And he works to likewise encourage the Corinthians, commending them not to lose heart. So why is it that he's encouraged? Why does the thing that looks like failure to most become victory for him? Well, his eyes are fixed on something that the Corinthians are not. I read a book when I was interning in college by Andy Stanley called Seven Practices of Highly Effective Ministers. The structure of the book is built on this parable of a discouraged pastor going to a baseball game and sitting next to the team's owner and getting advice on being effective. To be honest, I don't recall a whole lot about it. It wasn't exactly my cup of tea, but there was one thing that really stuck out and stuck with me all these years. And it was a simple idea that once you know what a win is, you know how to pattern your ministry and life. In the terms of baseball, it was you want to get more runs than the other team, or in Moneyball, reduce down, you want to get on base, right? Once you know that, you focus everything on that win and everything else follows afterwards. Paul here has a very narrow focus for what his goals are. Comfort, being free from suffering, is not one of them. Neither is keeping his own reputation clear. Because even the rehabilitation of his name with the Corinthian church is a means to an end. Saying in verse 15 that everything is for your sake, so that grace as it extends to more and more people may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. For Paul, the win here is that extension of grace, people giving thanks to God. Everything else serves that goal. This leads to the contrast that Paul makes between outer and inner natures. The outer nature wasting away is not, in the end, a problem for Paul, because what's going on in the inner nature is more, more important. Now, he's not rejecting the physical world for a disembodied spiritual one, but he does know that the outer self that has a death and resurrection in store of it, that outer self is still going to go through a transformation. That resurrection is something he puts his hope in. What he's doing, though, is contrasting the life of the world to come with things that will not last. It's the same thing that Jesus does when he calls his disciples to store up treasures in heaven and not treasures on earth, and then to pray that things would be on earth as they are in heaven. Again, these aren't a dualistic heaven later, earth now, but a sense that heaven is that which will sustain itself and continue into the life of the world to come. On earth, some of these things will yet decay. For Paul, there is this growth taking place in his inner self, and so whatever happens externally is secondary. Now, he's not a glutton for punishment. Paul's message isn't about self-flagellation. But it's a constant reminder to focus on things that truly matter. We can easily look for any number of external signs that display our success. Dollars or, as a church, attendance numbers or maybe number of times we've been published or perhaps our reputation. But all of those must be subservient to the kingdom of God. If what we do doesn't contribute to people growing in their love of God and of their love of neighbor, then what we do hasn't amounted to much. Now, that doesn't mean the ends justify the means. Quite the opposite. 
Our reading from Genesis 3, Genesis 3 shows us the folly of that mindset because part of Eve's justification for taking the fruit was that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. What it means, though, is that our actions, our plans, in fact, our whole lives must have as their focal point the good news that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, and that through Jesus, God is fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham to be a blessing to the whole world, a blessing that he will ultimately make all things new. I found comfort when I realized that Paul described his renewal as an ongoing process, that he is being renewed, because it means that even Paul had not arrived at a complete faithfulness yet. He still had room to grow. And so not only is external oppression nothing, our own inadequacies are not a sign of failure. Because as we continue to pursue God's will, he will continue to do in us the work that he did in Christ and will ultimately do for all creation, making dead things come alive. And while I was encouraged, it can still be hard to accept anything as an ongoing process instead of an instantaneous action. We want things now. I don't enjoy delayed gratification in my life or in my theology either. But I think we have to be honest with ourselves when we talk about this kind of growth. The question has to be asked, what happens when we are pressed again and again and there seems to be no release? What happens when, unlike the psalmist, we have a disease that is not healed or a friendship that's not reconciled or a neighborhood that doesn't renew or a conflict that seems to have no end in sight? As much as I love to talk about how God is acting even now, Paul places his ultimate hope in the not yet, in the final culmination of the work that God is doing when Christ returns. Paul's I believe and so I speak isn't that he was that just that he wasn't fully crushed, but that the body that is still subject to decay does what all decaying things do, and yet he knows that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us one day with Jesus. In verses 8 to 10 of this chapter, Paul has this litany of hardships, right? But then in verse 18, he calls them a slight momentary affliction, which prepares us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. That phrase leaped out to me as I read the text this week. The thing that Paul has put his hope in, a future hope, is such that the intense sufferings he was going through would not be even worth comparison. But that is a thing that requires faith. It's a thing that requires us to step out without complete assurance. And I do not always have the ability to keep in my mind a vision of what that glory could be. In fact, the trials and tribulations of this life can frequently feel like they have their own immeasurable weight. So how do we cultivate the hope that Paul commends to the Corinthians in this chapter? Well, Paul's advice is this, it seems a little bit nonsensical, to look at the things that can't be seen. Don't look at what can be seen, look at what cannot be seen. Look at eternal, invisible things, and don't fix your eyes on that which is temporary. Well, one way to do this impossible thing is to grab hold of the promises God has made. The Psalms do this all the time. Right in the middle of suffering, they speak back to God the things that he has promised. They don't quite demand it of him, but they get really close. They name God as the one who is good, who sees all things, who knows our affliction, and then looks to him to show it to be true. Calls on him to say, show me that what I have just said is in fact reality. The Beatitudes in Matthew 5 list out that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This seems untrue many days, but remembering this unseen truth can be both a prayer of intercession and a way to help fix our eyes on what is true, but perhaps just beyond our sight. 
It's the same thing we do every time we repeat in the creed that we declare that we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Something that none of us have seen, but we continue to stake our claim in, saying, God, you are the God of the resurrection, and we will continue in this faith. It does require faith, but we're not left alone without any clues. It was a privilege the last few months to talk to members of our church about signs of life, where they're finding hope in unlikely places in an unlikely season. Because those signs are like seeds that will grow into the magnificent garden of the world to come. Because the inner self, the kingdom that is to come, is starting even now. And when we reorient our eyes and our minds to see where God is acting, we can notice that shift. It often requires us to step out in faith, trusting in God's fundamental goodness, trusting that following him is in fact abundant life, even when it seems like a less than abundant, much more difficult way. But these signs give us the picture that decay will not have the last word, that there is something growing and developing, unseen, but maybe not unknown or unnoticed. I love the psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 130, because it gives exactly this kind of expression of faith and hope. The psalmist has called out to God from the depths of sorrow, and so they will wait. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits on him. In his word is my trust. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Waiting on the Lord implies an expectation. God, you will, in fact, make this waiting end. Watchmen sit in pitch black night, trusting that morning will come, no signs of it being present. But they've experienced the warmth of sunrise before, and so they believe that they will again. The psalm closes with, O Israel, trust in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all their sins. So may God give us eyes to see those unseen things that are to come. May we be given enough of God's grace now that we can believe and speak, testifying to God's goodness even amidst suffering. May that grace then grow in us such that God uses it to extend that grace to more and more people. And may God use the trials we go through to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Amen.